your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 17. We're in Luke chapter 17 today as we continue in our sermon series that we have entitled, But First, A Study of the Priorities of Christ. We've been looking at the priorities of Jesus because as followers of Jesus, we want our priorities to look like the priorities of Jesus. And the things that are important to him, we want those things to be important to us. So we've been doing this study, and if you begin to read the Gospels and think about this pattern, it pops up a lot. Jesus will be talking about one thing, and then he'll say, but first, do this other thing. So we've seen that over and over again. In fact, there's more time than he does that we're going to have time to do. Next week will be the last sermon in this series before we turn to our Advent series. Uh, but today... As we come to Luke 17, Jesus is talking about the coming of the kingdom of God. He makes a couple of points about that coming kingdom that we will look at today. And then Jesus says, but first, the Son of Man must suffer. And so we'll look at that today as our third point. Why would that be true? Why first must the Son of Man suffer? Let me read you the text out of Luke 17. I'm going to read verses 20 to verse 30. And then I'll pray for us, and we'll look at those words of Jesus together. I want you to hear now God's word from Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving it for us, lo, these many millennia. And we pray now that you would use your word just as you used it when you first uttered these words, and that we would learn the lessons you have for us to learn about the coming kingdom of God. But more than that, I pray that you would help us to learn why Jesus must suffer. Please come and be our teacher now. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do the work that only you can do in our hearts. And we ask that you would use the preaching of your word to do so. Father, I ask that you'd be willing to use even the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher to do so. 
For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, did you see the two points that Jesus makes about the coming kingdom of God before he makes that but first statement? We'll get to but first as the third point. But Jesus makes a couple of points about the coming kingdom of God that we need to see. Do you see them there in the text? First of all, Jesus makes this sort of astonishing statement. Number one, he says that the kingdom is now here. You see it there in verse 21. He says, the, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Your translation may say the kingdom of God is among you. He's saying the kingdom of God is here now. You see, the Pharisees are asking this question. Maybe they have a sincere question. I sort of doubt it because we've seen the Pharisees at this point in time asking a lot of questions of Jesus to test him, to try to ruin his credibility, to trip him up before people as he, Jesus has developed this following. But the Pharisees are asking this question, and the question they ask assumes that the kingdom of God is something that is exclusively a future occurrence. Their question assumes that the kingdom of God is something to come. And Jesus says, hold on. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He says the kingdom of God is among you. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God in some sense is now here. And he seems to be indicating that the kingdom of God is present in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus has explained it that way earlier. Just a few weeks or uh, before this, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus has begun his march toward Jerusalem, where he set his face to go to Jerusalem, where he will die. That's in Luke 9. And when you get to Luke 11, Jesus along the way has been casting out demons. Do you remember this story? He's casting out demons, and the Pharisees say, well, it is by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he casts out demons. And Jesus says, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why would I cast out demons by the power of a demon? And then Jesus says, and you know it's serious if he's going to quote Abraham Lincoln on them. He says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Yeah, Abraham Lincoln was quoting Jesus. I never knew that. I was Abraham Lincoln. No, Jesus said it's not by demons or the prince of demons that I cast out demons. That's not what it is, because a house divided against itself would not stand. And then Jesus says in Luke 11, there in verse 19, if I cast out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus seems to be saying that God's kingdom is present in his person and in his work. And he makes that statement again as the Pharisees assume that the kingdom of God is something exclusively to come. He says, no, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It is among you right now. That the kingdom of God is now. And the kingdom of God continues to be present in some sense. And it grows more and more as people filled with the Spirit of Christ grow and increase in number. And as we seek to bring all areas of life under the rule and reign of Christ, the kingdom of God comes more and more in this world. If 
there is a Holy Spirit-filled believer present in a place, then the Spirit of Christ is there. And the kingdom of God is coming to that place. So in some sense, the kingdom of God is here now. Now let me make a quick application before we go to the second point. What difference does that make? The kingdom of God is here. It's now. It's among us. Well, the world we live in today, we can lose hope. We can get depressed. I refer people to counselors, and all the counselors are telling me now they're way backed up because there seems to be this malaise that more than ever before people are dealing with anxiety. They're dealing with depression. Maybe it's COVID. Maybe it's uh, isolation. Maybe it's just a sign of the times. Maybe it's the political climate. For whatever reason, we can lose hope and feel doomed in this broken and messed up world. And we can come to expect the worst. And then we can come to think that all that's happening is that darkness will prevail and grow. And it seems that way sometimes. We get anxious if we think about sending our kids out into a world like this one. We can get cynical, even as Christians, cynical about not just our country or our community. We can get cynical about our spouses. They're not ever going to change. We can get cynical about our marriages. We can even get cynical about ourselves. This is just how I am. This is the way it's going to be. Well, listen. The fact that the kingdom of God is now here, that it is among you, that means that we don't have to live like defeated people until Jesus returns. There is hope for our children going out into the world. There is hope for our community and for our country. There is hope for our spouses and our marriages. There's even hope for us. That tomorrow does not have to be like yesterday because the kingdom of God is here. It is among you. The kingdom of God is in the midst of us. And as followers of Jesus, that gives us great hope because if Jesus blows in by his spirit, things change. And the kingdom of God grows. And the effects of the fall is pushed back even just a little bit in our hearts and in our homes. Jesus did say, in this world you will have trouble. But, he said something after that, right? But take heart, I have overcome the world. And the Apostle John reminds us, yes, the world is a broken place, but what did he say? He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Oh, that should bring us great hope as the people of God. Let me just ask you very practically, do you pray that way? Do you pray, oh, Lord, I pray that your kingdom come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sounds familiar. It's the way Jesus taught us to pray. Do you have that kind of hope and that kind of longing that even leads to, to specific prayer that the kingdom of God would 
to our country or to our community. That the kingdom of God would come and more and more be apparent in your heart or in your home or in your marriage or in your children. Do we pray that way? Jesus instructs us to. And are you intentional about seeing the kingdom of God come more and more in whatever place God puts you? You realize that's why you're there, right? That Christ would be more and more formed in you and that wherever you are, the kingdom of Christ would come more and more to that place. And in that way, we're salt and we're light in a broken world. And the kingdom of God comes more and more as that happens. The kingdom of God is now here. It is among you. The kingdom of God is in our midst, and that gives us great hope. But secondly, Jesus makes another point about the kingdom of God. And if you've been with us on the Wednesday night Bible study, I hope you're back this week at 6.30. But we've been talking about this concept, and so you probably know the second point, right? That the kingdom of God is here now, but secondly, that the kingdom of God is also what? Not yet. Good. The kingdom of God is also not yet here in all of its fullness. The kingdom of God is here. It is in our midst. It is among us. It has been inaugurated, but more is to be expected. The kingdom has not yet come in all of its fullness. And Jesus here says something that I hope will confirm something that you've already felt in your being. Because Jesus says here, this consummation of the kingdom, of the kingdom coming in all of its fullness, will not come as quick as you want it to. You see it there in verse 22? Notice he's not talking to the Pharisees anymore. He's turned and he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to those who are followers of Jesus. And he says to followers, he said to the disciples, the days that are coming... When you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Hear what Jesus is saying? He said, oh, the day's coming. You're going to long for Jesus to come back and make all things right. Because you'll see the brokenness in the world, and you'll feel the effects of the fall, and you will long for that day. He specifically says here, you will long for the day of the Son of Man. The Son of Man is that great messianic figure that's mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. And you can go and read there where Daniel has this vision of one coming like a Son of Man. And he's coming with the clouds of heaven, which we've talked about. He's coming with the clouds of heaven. And the Ancient of Days, God the Father, gives him dominion and glory. And he gives him a kingdom of people from every tribe and nation and people. I thought that was just in Revelation. No. It's foretold of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man is given a kingdom that will never pass away or be destroyed. And Jesus is saying, followers of mine... Disciples, you will long for that day to come, but you won't see it right away. Oh, 
you're going to want it to be here, but you're going to have to wait a little bit. You're going to have to be patient. We long for that day, don't we? As we see the brokenness of the world all around us, we long for that day. As we get bad news from the doctor, as we experience sickness and illness and see loved ones struggling with health problems, we long for that day when decay and disease will be no more. When we see injustice in the world, we experience that injustice or those close to us experience injustice. We long for that day when oppression will be no more. As we lose loved ones and hear of others losing loved ones to death, we long for that day when death will be no more. But Jesus says, followers of Jesus, you're going to have to wait a while. You're going to have to be patient. In fact, this whole thing, verse 26 to 30, where he's talking about Noah and Lot, he's making the point that when the kingdom does come, it's going to come quickly, right? There'll be people out working the field. There's not time to go back home and get your stuff. And the kingdom of God's going to come quickly. When it comes... It's going to come fast, but you're going to have to wait a long time and be patient until it comes. What does it say? It says that life will go unusual for a while, that we'll go on with eating and drinking, that we'll go on with marrying and being given in marriage. That's generation after generation. You will go on buying and selling. You will go on planting and building. It's going to be a while. Before Jesus comes back and makes all things right. We need to be ready now because when he comes, he's coming quick. There won't be time once he lights up the sky. So we should be ready now, but we have to be patient. Waiting on the kingdom of God to come with all this. What would be the application for that? Maybe I've got some perfectionists in the house. Boy, you want things to be right. We long for perfect children. We long for perfect marriages. We long for perfect homes. We long for perfect communities, a perfect country. We have ideas about what the perfect government would look like. And what Jesus is saying here is that those perfect things do not exist until Jesus returns. Listen, even the most sanctified people, even people who are the most holy, continue to struggle with vestiges of their sinful selves until Jesus takes us home, or comes back and makes all things new. Sin will be a continual struggle. It is not going away. And we get frustrated sometimes because we expect our kids to be perfect. We expect our spouses to be perfect. We expect our pastors to be perfect. We expect our churches to be perfect. There is no perfect church. And there won't be until Jesus comes back. So stop looking for one. It does not exist. Where does that 
leave us. The kingdom is now here. I have great hope. Things can improve. Things can get better. They don't have to be like they were yesterday. We're not doomed to failure. The kingdom is here now. But we're going to have to be patient. It's not going to be perfect until Jesus brings the kingdom back and all that's full. So I'm going to extend grace to my kids. Not that we don't pray for the Spirit to come and make them look more like Jesus. But we don't expect perfection. We don't expect that of our kids or of our spouses or of our government or of our marriages or of our pastors or our churches. Because perfection does not exist this side of heaven. What Jesus is saying. The kingdom is now here, so we have great hope. But the kingdom of God is not yet here in all of its fullness. So we're going to have to be patient. That's hard for us, isn't it? Imagine how hard it must be for, for God. <laughs> he made all things perfect. We come and we mess it up. And I long for it to be made right because I'm made in his image and have been renewed by his spirit. He's got to be more bothered by it than I am. And he's patient. Not wanting any to perish, but wanting to leave time for people to come to repentance. Leaving time for us to turn to him before the end comes. Leaving time for others to become and be a part of the kingdom before it comes back in all of its fullness. If you struggle with that like I do, ask the Lord for patience. You know, it's something that His Spirit gives. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, is love and joy and peace and patience. Holy Spirit, come and grow your fruit in us. So Jesus makes these two points about the kingdom. And then he just says, but first, before all that, before the kingdom comes in its fullness, but first, the Son of Man must suffer. You see it there in verse 25. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, that was kind of weird to me. Not just he will suffer, like it's a prediction of what's going to happen in the future, and surely Jesus knows what's going to happen. But it's not just like he's saying this is what's going to happen, like a prediction, but he's saying it, it, it must happen. Well, maybe it's just the way he said it here. No, he says it this way in Matthew and in Mark. He says it this way earlier in Luke. Maybe you remember that time in Luke chapter 9, where he's with the disciples out there at Caesarea Philippi, and he says, who do men say that I am? They said, well, Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist or one of the other prophets. And he says, who do you say that I am? He says, well, Peter said, well, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Daniel 7, son of man. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. This has been revealed to you by God, not by flesh and blood. And on this rock, I will build my church. And he says, don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah. The people had misunderstandings. I thought the kingdom was going to come right away. And so Jesus says, don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah yet. And then he begins to teach his disciples in Luke 9, verse 22, the Son of Man 
must suffer many things and be rejected and killed on the third day. He'll be raised. Again, he uses this must language. And Peter takes him to the side and forbid it, Lord, that the Daniel 7 son of man be anointed would suffer and die? Forbid it, Lord. That would never happen. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. That the idea that the anointed one is not going to suffer was a satanic idea. Jesus feels very strongly about this idea that the Son of Man must suffer. Why is it a must? We get a little more insight later in Luke. If you turn over a couple of pages in Luke 24, the resurrected Christ is on the road to Emmaus with the disciples who don't recognize him at first. And they're telling him everything that happened. And they're sad because they're going back home because they think, well, we thought he was the Messiah, but he died. So he must not be. And Jesus in Luke 24, beginning in verse 25 Jesus responds, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary, there's your must, was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If you're thinking, wow, I'd rather hear that lecture than the one I'm hearing right now. Me too. I'd love to hear Jesus expound the scripture about how everything was foretelling. But he specifically says that all the scriptures say that the, the, the Messiah must suffer these things in order to enter his glory. So yes, we get some of an answer. The reason why the Messiah must do this is because the prophets foretold that. But why did they foretell that? Well, it must have been God's plan that the prophets were revealing. Yes, that's true, but, but, but why is it God's plan? If you read the plan, if you read the scripture, it seems to be clear that that is God's plan, and that it is voluntarily carried out by Jesus. We'll talk about that in a minute, but, but why is that the plan? Why would you plan to suffer? I don't know about you. I try to avoid it every chance I get. I don't want to suffer. I'm surely not going to plan to do so. But you know, even we as fallen creatures, we will suffer for a greater good. We will endure great suffering if there is a purpose in our suffering. We are willing to sacrifice ourselves for the good of another. I think about moms sacrificing their comfort to carry a baby to full term. I think of moms going through the suffering of delivery for the good of having this child. I think of parents parenting. If you don't have kids yet, don't listen to this. But parenting kids is suffering. But we're willing to do that for the good of our children and for the good of the next generation and the good of our community and the good of our country. We're willing to make those sacrifices. Recently, I learned 
Sometimes you have to suffer and make sacrifices if you're sending one to college. But we do that for their good and for the good of our community and our country. We're willing to suffer if it's for a greater good. And the scripture tells us that's why Jesus endured suffering. 1 Peter 3 and verse 18 tells us, for Christ died for sins. If you got the ESV, it actually says suffered right there. He suffered for sins, but this one, I've got my head in the old 1984 NIV. So it's 1 Peter 3, 18, for Christ died for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. It's the greater good that Jesus suffered and died he did it because it secured a greater good. He did it for us so that we could be brought to God. There's nothing greater he could give us. I think of John chapter 10, down around verse 11, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says it twice. And then lest you think he's a victim of some kind of circumstance, he says down in John 10, down around verse 18, he says, Listen, nobody takes my life away from me. Jesus, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. But then he voluntarily chooses to give his life for the sheep. He does it for us. Think about what happens when we come to the Lord's table later in Luke, Luke 22. Down there around verse 19, in the midst of the Lord's Supper, Jesus will say, this is my body, which is given for you. And then Jesus goes to the cross. He does it for us. He does it for a greater good. Why? To bring us to God. What greater gift can he give us? A relationship with the God of the universe. Think about what that means, though. Think about that with me. If this was God's plan all along, that means God wanted you. He wanted a relationship with you. He desired that. And he was willing to have his son put on flesh and to come and suffer and to be mistreated and misunderstood to make that happen. You see, the obstacle preventing us from being his was our sin. And Jesus dealt with our sin on the cross. First Peter 3 says, for Christ died for sins. First Corinthians 15 verse 3 says, Christ died for sins According to the scripture, I get the Daniel 7 son of man thing, and I like to think of him coming back in all his glory. Peter was thinking about that too. But Jesus here is combining two iconic images of the Old Testament. Yes, the Daniel 7 son of man who will rule and have a kingdom that never ends, a kingdom made up of people from every tribe and nation and people group given him by the ancient of days. But how does that happen? The Isaiah 53 suffering servant. First, the Son of Man must suffer. 
Isaiah 53. Probably the clearest place that the prophets foretell. We read some of it in our time of confession and assurance of pardon. Why must Jesus die? Why would that be the language? Isaiah 53 and verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? Stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Right there in verse 12 where it says he was numbered with the transgressors. Luke 22, verse 37, you need to know. That as Jesus was on the way to the cross, he said this verse, Isaiah 53, 12, he'll be numbered with the transgression. This must be fulfilled in me. Jesus said Isaiah 53 was about him. You keep reading Luke 23. This is so fascinating to me. Jesus is hanging on the cross. And he's saying Pharisees asking these questions. They say to him, mm -hmm. there he is. He saved others. If he's the son of God, can he not save himself? In a real sense, the answer to that question is, is no. Yes, he could have called legions of angels to come and to save him, but then he wouldn't save others. In order to save others, he must suffer and die because it was the plan of God all along. How do we respond to so great a sacrifice for us? One thought about that, and listen, every analogy breaks down, every illustration is imperfect. But this past Thursday, on November the 11th, we celebrated Veterans Day, and I don't know if you followed that online or whatever 
social media, everything was out there saluting our veterans. We're so grateful for those who have served. But imagine you were wounded. You're behind enemy lines. You were going to die. It was just a matter of time. And uh, imagine a fellow soldier risked his life to save you. Maybe this fellow soldier is even wounded. Maybe he suffers to save you. How would you react to him when you get back here home to the States? How would you react as you marry, as you have children, as you accomplish things in a job? Would you remember his birthday and wish him a happy birthday? Yeah, of course you would. If he asked a favor of you or wanted something, there's something you could do for him, would you do it? Of course you would. Because you wouldn't have anything, you wouldn't be anything if it weren't for his willingness to suffer for you. Oh, how much more should our response be to Jesus, who when we were dead in our sins and our transgressions, made us alive. By being willing to leave the perfection of heaven where he was worshipped and adored, to come here to the earth to be mistreated, to be misunderstood, to be oppressed, to suffer, and to die for our sins. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Yeah, let's remember his birthday and Christmas. Let's celebrate that. But we owe him so much more. We owe him all that we have and all that we are. Let's pray and ask God to help us to live in that way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. That you wanted us so much that you were willing to leave, to, to send your son, to die for our sin, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. I pray that would capture our hearts and our minds and that we would never be the same, that we would be forever changed because of your sacrifice for us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.